Welcome to the Women's Pelvic Pain Podcast, your ultimate source of uncensored information on women's pelvic health. In this podcast, you will hear from health practitioners, holistic healers, nutrition experts, and fitness gurus, in addition to people who have or had suffered from chronic pelvic pain in order to learn and understand everything there is to know about pelvic floor disorders. I'm here to share with you what I've learned in my seven and counting years of personal experience with chronic pelvic pain. Approximately one-third of women suffer from pelvic pain. It's an unspoken epidemic. So many of us have it, yet no one talks about it. However, the mission of this podcast is to break the pelvic pain silence. The conversations are intimate, raw, and completely unedited in order to deliver the most authentic information possible. With education, patience, and the proper tools and techniques, pelvic pain can be overcome. Before we begin this episode, I want to take a minute to tell you guys about a life-changing book called Pelvic Liberation. This book is written by Leslie Howard, a renowned yoga teacher who specializes in the use of yoga for pelvic floor disorders. After she suffered from her own hypertonic pelvic pain syndrome, she found tremendous relief through her yoga practice, which she talks about in great detail in the book. Throughout the past 12 years, Leslie has taught women of all ages how to practice yoga to help alleviate pelvic floor conditions. So I own this book, I read it so many times, and I truly believe that it is something that everyone listening, anyone who has any sort of pelvic pain could really benefit from. The book approaches yoga, breathing techniques, and self-inquiry through the lens of the female pelvis. Leslie does truly an amazing job of bringing a thoughtful, thorough, lighthearted, and therapeutic focus to a subject that can usually be difficult and scary. This book was written as a call to normalize the conversation around pelvic pain and to improve women's knowledge and awareness of their pelvis. The book includes detailed explanations of key yoga postures and breathing practices that are designed to heal and awaken the female pelvis. So Leslie and I have worked together to be able to provide all of the Women's Pelvic Pain podcast listeners a 10% discount on the book when you order it directly through her website. Her website is www.lesliehowardyoga.com. That's spelled Leslie, L-E-S-L-I-E, Howard, H-O-W-A-R-D, Yoga, Y-O-G-A. And I will also include the direct link into the show notes if you want to access it that way. Um, And so if you add the book to your cart on her website, when you check out, there will be a box for a discount code. Into that box, enter the code pelvicflooryoga10, one word, no spaces. That's pelvicflooryoga10. And you will receive a 10% discount that will be directly applied to your order. Welcome back to the Women's Pelvic Pain Podcast. Today, I am here with a very special guest, Stephanie Prendergast. She is by far one of the most renowned experts in the world of pelvic health, so it is an honor to be sitting with her here today and to have her share all of her knowledge with the listeners. Um, So Stephanie is the co-founder of the Pelvic Health and Rehabilitation Center, which first opened in San Francisco in 2006. Since then, she and her co-founder, Liz, have grown PHRC, which stands for Pelvic Health and Rehabilitation Center, into nine additional locations, Berkeley, Walnut Creek, Los Gatos, West Los Angeles, and Westlake Village. Those are all in California. 
and then Lexington, Massachusetts, Natick, Massachusetts, and Bedford, New Hampshire. The Pelvic Health and Rehabilitation Center is the largest multi-center clinic in the United States dedicated solely to management of pelvic floor disorders. They help women, men, children, and gender non-conforming persons to optimize their pelvic health. Stephanie currently treats patients in the West Los Angeles location, and her and her co-founder Liz developed the first continuing education course on the topic of pudendal neuralgia. They taught this two-day course 37 times between 2016 and 2013. Stephanie was elected to the International Pelvic Pain Society's Board of Directors in 2002, and in 2013, she was the first physical therapist to be president of the society. In 2013 and 2015, she served on the program committee of the World Congress of Abdominal and Pelvic Pain, and in 2017, she served as the scientific program chair, bringing the World Congress to the United States. She's also authored numerous publications in peer-reviewed journals and textbooks and regularly lectures at medical conferences and in the community on pelvic health-related topics. Stephanie's an advocate for people with pelvic pain, pelvic floor physical therapists, and the field of pelvic health in general. She and Liz co-authored the popular book Pelvic Pain Explained, and the Pelvic Health and Rehabilitation Center publishes an award-winning blog, As the Pelvis Turns, every Thursday. You can find Stephanie on Twitter as at Pelvic Health and the Pelvic Health and Rehabilitation Center on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest. So without further ado, let's get started. Thanks for having me. Um, so I got into pelvic health actually in 2001. Mm -hmm. I was in regular physical therapy for about a year and it just wasn't as interesting to me as I thought it would be when I chose that profession in school. Mm Um, so I met a urologist in 2001, and he welcomed me into his practice. And what I saw were men and women who couldn't sit down, they couldn't have sex, it hurt them to urinate, bowel movements were painful, and that was much more meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. And so quickly I dove into the field and from the beginning worked in an interdisciplinary setting, mm-hmm. specifically with complex pelvic pain. Mm-hmm. So I think our background is a little bit different than some other people. Um, We got pretty specialized very quickly, which resulted in a pretty steep learning curve, Mm -hmm. which I think was useful both for us and for our patients. Right. Mm -hmm. And so what conditions do you treat as a pelvic floor physical therapist? I've had other pelvic floor physical therapists on the podcast, but I think it's always good to kind of backtrack and start from the beginning. And for those people listening who might not be familiar with what pelvic floor physical therapy is, Um, if you could just give a little introduction to what exactly it is and what the conditions you treat here are. Mm -hmm. So the pelvic floor muscles basically are inside your pelvic cavity between the pubic bone and the tailbone. Mm -hmm. They are involved in urinary bowel sexual function as well as providing support for the organs. Clearly are involved in things like childbirth and so most people don't know they have a pelvic floor until something goes wrong. Right. But it really can affect people throughout the lifespan. So in children, it can present as bedwetting and constipation issues. Mm-hmm. As people get into adolescence, they may notice things like pain with tampon insertions. Um, it does affect men too. Sometimes it only thinks of women when people think of these issues, but men also can have pelvic pain mm-hmm. as well as incontinence issues. Right. So as people advance through the lifespan, um, incontinence and things like that can play a role later in life. Menopausal changes can create some issues. Mm-hmm. But the bulk of our patients here, especially in LA, is complex pelvic pain. The general aim, age range for that would be probably late teens through their 50s. Right. It, and it, again, 
it affects men and women at pretty high frequencies. One in three women will have a pelvic floor disorder at some point in their life. 10% of men will have pelvic pain at some point in their life. Surgeries that people go through later on, such as pelvic reconstruction, hysterectomies, prostatectomy for men, all have consequences on the pelvic floor that are treatable, but physical therapy isn't always part of the treatment plan. Right. One of the reasons why we advocate for the field of pelvic health, pelvic floor PTs, and reasons why this podcast is an excellent idea. Sometimes we reach people in different ways. It's mm-hmm. not always your physician is recommending a service such as ours. Right. And I always find it so interesting when I talk to people about the podcast or pelvic pain, my experience with pelvic pain, exactly what you just said. No one knows what your pelvic floor is until you have a problem with it. So I had no idea what my pelvic floor was, what what pelvic pain is. It took me at least a year to wrap my head around the fact that like my vaginal burning and itching and bladder frequency was pelvic pain Mm. like that was so such a complicated thing for me to understand because i i'd never known what my pelvic floor was Mm -hmm. so i just think it's interesting that it really takes you having a problem with your pelvic floor in order to know what what that part of your body does and when you experience symptoms like right. you just described the last thing you think of is physical therapy exactly yeast infection uti you go to the doctor right and depending on when they graduated from medical school or what advanced training they have they may or may not know mm-hmm. the symptoms of pelvic floor disorders and it's not a fault of the physicians yeah. it really is just what you're exposed to right. particularly because this isn't always taught in schools both physical therapy and medical schools mm-hmm. still in 2018 it's some crazy. programs have it right. and some don't Mm-hmm. So I saw on your website you wrote an article specifically about vulvodynia, vestibulodynia, and vaginismus. I wanted to focus on those three kind of diagnoses in specific. We've never really talked about those diagnoses on the podcast. We have, but not in that much detail. And I think that those three diagnoses are really prevalent amongst women who have pelvic pain. So I thought that this would be the perfect time to dive a little bit deeper into what those issues are and how you treat them and how they're what what causes them and etc. Great. One of my favorite topics. (laughs) Um, And the reason I wrote that blog post is because a lot of times things just get lumped together as pelvic pain. Right. And those three words can be used interchangeably. Mm -hmm. And that's actually not correct. Mm -hmm. And the reason it matters is because they actually are a little bit more specific of a diagnosis, which means each of them warrants a different treatment plan. Right. So it is important to know which one of these you have. And there is some overlap between the three. So if we wanted to start with the broad overlapping condition, we can start with vulvodynia. Mm -hmm. All that means is pain in the vulva. The vulva consists of the clitoral area, labia, majora, minora, working its way in. Mm -hmm. The vestibule is another part of the vulvar anatomy, and it basically separates the internal vagina from the external vulva. Right. So that's two different parts of anatomy. So if somebody has vulvodynia, they can also have vestibulodynia, which is pain in one specific area, just the vestibule. Mm -hmm. But if they have pain outside of the vestibule or clitoral pain, that would be vulvodynia. Right. People with vaginismus have pain in the muscles specifically. Mm -hmm. So a difference between vulvodynia and vestibulodynia and vaginismus can be if the skin is involved, the tissues are involved, 
or is are the muscles a problem? Sometimes it's both, sometimes it's one. The most common cause of vestibulodynia is hormonal insufficiencies. Mm-hmm. The top three are oral contraceptives or birth control pills, right. hormonal suppressant therapy for endometriosis, um, menopause, and breastfeeding. So those are top reasons why the vestibular tissue can get compromised from mm-hmm. a hormone perspective. If that happens, there can also be accompanying muscle spasm, but treatment is gonna involve addressing the tissue issues, which usually involves some sort of hormonal therapy, as well as physical therapy to address the muscle issues. Interesting. Women can have tissue changes without muscle spasm, uh-huh. and women can have muscle spasm without tissue changes. That right. would be vaginismus. Right. So many women with vaginismus have perfectly intact tissue. That's like my case, I but think. But the muscles yeah. hurt. Exactly. And so that's going to be a different treatment plan. Right. Um, so I really think it's important for people to get specific about the diagnosis, and often, unfortunately, that can only be made by a specialist who really knows the difference between them yeah but they all have different causes and the treatments will be different Mm -hmm. so what just if we start with vulvodynia what are some of the main causes of vulvodynia so that recently in 2015 i was part of um, a vulvodynia task force that involved Mm -hmm. four major societies and what was great about it is they finally updated the definition of vulvodynia because until that point in 2015 the definition of vulvodynia was pain in the vulva of unknown cause now if anyone is dealing with those symptoms and you hear there's no known cause that also means there's no treatment right and it's very scary and that's just not true right. but it was only the specialists who really understood and so the point of that consensus meeting was to get the information into the hands of the general public mm-hmm. so the top causes of vulvodynia one of the leading is as i just mentioned hormonal insufficiencies mm-hmm. there can be dermatologic skin conditions such as lichen sclerosis lichen planus which affects the vulva and the vagina there can be things like cancer issues that can cause some of these tissue changes muscle dysfunction is a known cause of some of the vulvar sensitivity there can be changes from things like childbirth unfortunately unintended changes from surgeries such as hysterectomies Mm -hmm. there can be neuropathic causes such as pudendal neuralgia or tarloff cysts infectious causes such as yeast infections bacterial vaginosis Um, but all in all all the women with vulvodynia have pain somewhere in their vulva and that can be one area or it can be every piece of the anatomy i just mentioned so interesting and it's so crazy how many different causes there are Right, but it's also encouraging because if it's an infectious cause, you want to entreat the infection. Sometimes the symptoms go away. Sometimes there's residual consequences such as nerve sensitivity or muscle tightness. That was exactly what happened. And then that can be treated too. Yeah. So I don't want women to feel like they have a disease of unknown cause. Right. It's not a disease. It's a syndrome. There are known causes and there's effective treatments. So I was really happy that, that these papers got published. But again, you'll see that subsets of people know a ton about it and then some people may not be aware of this at all i also think that the terms are just really scary like words i remember when i first heard the term vulvodynia in my case and i've talked about this in some other episodes but basically i had chronic yeast infections and utis and bacteria infections and i also hold a lot of my like stress in my lower back and apparently my pelvic floor as well 
so after I had all of these infections and then I, I had vaginal burning and itching and bladder frequency and the infections were treated, but the symptoms didn't go away. Mm-hmm. And so after lots of Googling, I came across all of these words, vulvodynia being one of them. And my grandmother actually had almost all of these issues as well. And so I was like calling my mom, like, mom, I have vulvodynia. And I was freaking out, like thinking that this is something that would never go away. And I didn't even know what it meant and it was just it's scary when you don't know what these terms are and you read about them or someone tells you that you have them but again to your point now like two and a half years later i've realized that these terms are not scary and they are completely treatable and there are lots of different treatment methods for them and people who are treating them so i think that that's really reassuring and at times i've looked myself at what people see right. when they google and it's incredibly alarming. Yeah. And then on top of that, if you think you have this and you go to a doctor who says that doesn't exist or you're going to have it the rest of your life, those words will stick with people for a long time. Yeah. And one of our jobs is to undo all the misinformation that has unfortunately been conveyed. Yeah. It's very upsetting. And again, it can start as early as the teenage years. And so it feels like a death sentence to many women and it shouldn't. That's really part of the point that we're making is these things are treatable and we know what causes it. Right. So how do you treat vulvodynia? So the first thing is the history. So mm-hmm. typically, a few pointed questions will help me figure out how the person developed their symptoms. Right. And that's helpful for the person to know, too, because a lot of times you may not know. As you just mentioned, repetitive yeast infections can sensitize the tissues. Mm-hmm. And then once the yeast is gone, you may still feel like you have the symptoms of it right. because the muscles, tissues, and nerves can recreate that. Um, If there has been an intensive history of oral contraceptive use, Mm -hmm. some women have a genetic mutation that will make them more likely to develop vulvodynia, and other women can take the pill and they're fine. And we don't know who that is yet because there's no commercially available test for women to know. That's Um, so interesting. It bothers me that it's not counseled as a risk factor. Everyone talks about blood clots and these other things that can happen. But if it's going to cause painful sex or inability to wear pants, I think it needs to be on the label. And it just isn't. So asking a few questions usually helps me figure out how I think the person ended up in this situation. Mm -hmm. And then it's paired with a physical examination to see what physical changes are there that we can address in physical therapy, which ones maybe need medical management. Right. And then we can devise a treatment plan that usually occurs over a series of, it depends on how long the person has had the problem and how severe the pain is. Right. But usually at least three months, I'd say once a week, is how the treatment plan gets started if the symptoms have only been there a few months they may be in and out of the clinic pretty quickly Mm -hmm. if someone's been suffering for five six seven years which we have a whole range of that throughout the day um, then they'll probably be in therapy a little bit longer and may need additional medical support too so as pts i feel like we we have the most time with patients compared to some of the medical community so what we try to do is really get an understanding of the person's problem, explain that to them, and then help them organize the rest of their medical team because sometimes it is more than just physical therapy. Right, and as we spoke about in the past few weeks, but you have a whole team of amazing doctors in this area that you refer patients to if physical therapy isn't the only line of treatment for them. Correct. Um, And then in terms of birth control, what are your thoughts on the IUD in relation to vulvodynia? So recently, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, which is the governing body of GYN, 
has now recommended the IUD as the primary form of birth control for women. Right. Stepping away from oral contraceptives and things like that, they think the IUD, specifically something like the Mirena uh-huh. or the Skylar, which has a low dose of progesterone that stays pretty local in the uterus, right. is the preferred method. That doesn't affect your systemic hormones, so you're not likely to develop something like vulvodynia or vestibulodynia mm-hmm. from using an IUD. It's also a very effective method of birth control. Right. I had, so for like six years, I had the Skyla and then the Mirena. And then when I was having all of these pelvic pain issues, I don't know why, I like kind of freaked myself out and I wanted to rule every factor out. And my gynecologist said there's absolutely no way that the Mirena is causing me to have any problems. She didn't want to take it out. But after like a year and a half of having this pain, I was like, you know what? I don't have my boyfriend anymore. I don't care. Just take it out. Like maybe I'm 0.0001 percentage of someone who has an adverse reaction. But anyways, it didn't seem to resolve any of the issues. But I'm much better now just through physical therapy and um, other treatments. But now I want to get the Mirena back. And my gynecologist said that it really is a very good form of birth control for people who are prone to pelvic pain. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then in terms of vestibulodynia, is that treated similarly to vulvodynia? I feel like that's definitely more specific. Right. So the vestibule is the tissue, as I said, between the vulva and the vagina. Mm-hmm. And there's a high density in nerve endings just in everybody. Right. But in some women, there's actually a higher density of pain fibers. And so those women are more susceptible to pain. That tissue can also be degraded by repetitive yeast infections, more so than the vulva and more so than the vaginal tissue. Mm-hmm. And that also is one of the targets of issues with the birth control pill. We need a certain amount of circulating testosterone and estrogen for those tissues specifically. And if that's put down below normal levels, which birth control pills, endometriosis drugs, breastfeeding, and menopause all do, then the vestibule may be the thing that's compromised. So the vulva's fine, the vagina's fine, but the vestibule's not. That is almost always something that needs to be dealt with medically, and it can be accompanied by muscle spasm, and sometimes it's not. Often we will see women who want to come to physical therapy, let's say in the menopausal years for painful sex, we do an examination, well, they just have atrophy of those tissues. And so physical therapy isn't going to be able to help them if it's a tissue issue. So our differential diagnosis is very important. We need to know what's affected and how we're going to tackle it. How do you how do you find out if the tissue is compromised? So we do a visual inspection. And you can see if the tissue... You can yeah. in severe cases. So you may see erythema, which is just redness. Right. You may see the tissue turning pale. Right. Like after you've seen so many vulvas and vaginas and things, like we know what it's supposed to look like. Yeah. So we compare the visual inspection with what's called a cotton swab test mm-hmm. to also identify areas of pain. So often if we see a vestibule that maybe some of it's very red and some of it isn't. Usually when we touch it with a Q-tip or a finger, the areas that are red or pale or fissuring are going to be painful. Right. And then we can compare it to the parts of the vestibule that aren't. Mm-hmm. So that helps the person who's suffering understand some of the differences. 
Um, here we often take pictures for people on their own cell phones. So once a month we can check in and monitor the tissue changes. We'll see the redness go away. We'll see the pinkness return. We'll see the fissures heal. And with that, usually the pain with the cotton swab test goes down. And then subsequently people can return to wearing tight pants and they can return to intercourse comfortably. Right. Um, so we we track it that way because it's when you're going through this and this can take a series of weeks like it's hard to quantify progress most people really know hard. they feel bad or they know they feel good right but there's this whole range in the middle that we try to get very specific about to help people through the process and so that treatment is a combination of the PT and other hormonal medications as well typically yes so is this something that you see mostly in older women or you young young women can have compromised tissue as well yeah so i mean again we see women who are 18 19 20 and they mm. look like they're in menopause because they've been on birth control pills since they got their period or specifically if you have endometriosis which is really painful periods right one of the ways they treat that is hormonal suppression right but that will have a negative consequence on the vulva and the vestibule some in some people more than others so now you've got endometriosis symptoms but you also have painful intercourse that is not related to the endo but it's now related to the tissue and so we've got to tackle that on all of those levels interesting (laughs) (laughs) it's just it's crazy how many factors overlap and play into the bigger picture Mm -hmm. Um, and we're only talking about a small subset just because I think that those are the most common right but there's the dermatologic diseases too which if it's something like like lichen sclerosis that is going to involve a topical steroid Mm -hmm. and maybe some other treatments to help the tissue heal or at least preserve the architecture of it right Um, if there's been a tear during childbirth with episiotomy that can affect the vestibule too that's completely unrelated to the things that I've just said Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes when people have had a hysterectomy, if the pudendal nerve gets affected, that can cause pain in those areas that's not hormonally related. Right. So it, the history is important, the physical exam, and just piecing it all together. And just for anyone listening who may have vestibulodynia and, and compromised vaginal tissue, this tissue can be repaired through proper treatment. Yes. Uh-huh. Yes. Okay. Almost always. Right. Um, There's some delineation between what's called primary vestibulodynia and secondary. Mm -hmm. Primary means that it's been present since the first time there's ever been an attempted gynecologic exam, sex, tampon. Secondary means for a period of time things were comfortable and now it's affected. Right. And so in some cases with the primary, what they call primary congenital, some people may just have different anatomy with extra nerve endings, as I said, for Mm -hmm. simplistic terms. And in some of those cases, like surgical intervention is effective and warranted. Right. It's important, again, with the history to try to figure out which scenario the people have. Now can we talk about vaginismus? Yes. Okay. So <laughs> vaginismus can be a subset of these things, and it can right. exist totally differently. So for the sake of simplicity, let's say the vulva tissue, the vulvar tissue is fine. There is no vestibulodynia, but the woman cannot tolerate penetration or it's just physically impossible. Like literally it feels like the penis is hitting a wall. Mm. Um, or the tampon can't get in. And so in those cases, the pelvic floor muscles are circular and they surround the opening of the vagina. The muscles can become tight and contracted 
and they can physiologically shorten, meaning that they just don't stretch enough to allow penetration. And that can be painful and in some areas more than others. And in those cases, that can be a primary physical therapy treatment. It will involve manual therapy, teaching the patient how to use dilators, teaching people how to relax their pelvic floor muscles. I think a lot of times women may blame themselves and they're told they're too tight or to drink a glass of wine and just relax. And that that's not something that's physiologically reasonable in many of these people. The women did not do this to themselves. Mm-hmm. This is just if this much as our hair is brown and someone else's is blonde, that can just be the situation. Right. And so that can just exist primary or it can be secondary to things like trauma or sexual abuse that over time the muscles have been contracted but it's not like somebody's intentionally squeezing. Mm -hmm. If you think about when you put your arm in a cast let's say at 90 degrees you take the cast off you can't straighten your arm right away because your tissues have shortened right to accommodate the cast so it's almost that same type of thing but inside the bony pelvis so you can't see it right um so we try to do a lot of education around the muscles what they look like and how to get them to relax in certain cases botox is appropriate for those people if they don't have access to physical therapy i love knowing that's an option right in which that will chemically make the muscles relax for three to six months sometimes that is enough to keep the muscles back down to where they should be sometimes it's not it Mm -hmm. just has to be taken step by step i just got um, botox twice so my physical therapist in new york had recommended and what's interesting about my situation is that i never had painful sex ever but i had every other symptom of really tight pelvic floor muscles so i had burning and itching and pudendal neuralgia and all of these mm. other issues that come along with it but i never had painful sex but fast forward two plus years and i still have this burning and itching and bladder frequency it's so much better but it's still like a l- it lingers so my physical therapist said you should really 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 try getting pelvic floor Botox and this new gynecologist that I'm seeing in New York who's amazing her name's Dr. Dina Harris and she did the Botox and it helped it did help and then I went back a month later and she did a little bit more but it I didn't like do everything that I think my physical therapist and she thought it would do So my thoughts on Botox are if we know that the pelvic floor muscles are contributing to someone's symptoms and it's very apparent and week after week physical therapy is, you know, it's kind of like a step forward, a step back, a step forward, a step back. And we know the muscles are part of the problem, then Botox will be effective for taking out the muscle hypertonus. But in a situation like you're describing, what I'm hearing is you probably have a muscular component but you also have a vulvar tissue component. Mm -hmm. And that's why some people want Botox to be the end all be all. It's only gonna take care of the muscle pain and the consequences of that. If there are tissue issues, it's not gonna help that. So one of my- Or nerve issues. Or nerve issues, it may not help that either. So one of my biggest pet peeves are when people just do Botox for pelvic pain. Right. That makes no sense to me because you don't know what the source of the pelvic pain is. Right. But if you know that there's muscle tenderness and muscle pain, mm-hmm. it is absolutely something that we know will work well, for how? those for those parts of it. Right. But it may not take care of all your symptoms if there's multiple things going on. And there usually are multiple things and, going on with people who have pelvic pain. And in and, and maybe some cases a pure vaginismus where they only have provoked symptoms when trying to do penetration, mm-hmm. sometimes that is just a muscular issue. But that's probably one of the only cases where I would say that. Right. That it's just one area. And 
does the Botox work as if you so in this situation that you just explained, would the Botox work as a long term solution? I know that it only lasts a certain amount of months, but like, will the muscles kind of be retrained to not be as tight over time? Or like, will they go right back to their original condition? Everybody's different. Right. Um, and if you've removed some of the contributing factors, like let's say there was 17 yeast infections and now you're in muscle spasm because of that. Right. But you've got the yeast under control and then you do Botox, maybe you're not going to need it again. Right. Um, but if a series of events happen that can trigger pelvic floor tightness, bacterial infections, UTIs, falls, random things, um, the muscles could tighten up again. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the break from the Botox is those three to six months, people's muscles just go back down to normal. It doesn't need to be repeated, especially when combined with physical therapy. The goal is that you're not going to have to do that again. Interesting. And so is vaginismus difficult to treat or because my physical therapists have explained to me that is, and I don't want to make a generalization, but to kind of generalize treating vaginismus obviously everyone's case is different but they have kind of explained to me that it's an easy not easier I think that's the wrong word but if that's their only issue they can resolve that like that can be resolved or I don't know what what is your experience with treating vaginismus I think it's a a range. Um, Sometimes if there's been significant trauma, the treatment alone is traumatic. And so we've got to really figure out how to be therapeutic without causing more stress and more trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, as we're talking about some of these things for simplicity in Mm -hmm. isolation, we need to remember, of course, this is attached to a person. And what their day-to-day life is like, their stressors, how they're perceiving their problem, how they're responding to treatment, all of these things come into play. So I wouldn't say any of these are easier or harder. They're just, if you know clearly what's going on, the differential diagnosis will help you tackle every aspect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And vaginismus, in addition to the other two conditions, is something that can be cured and treated and, you know, you won't have a life of painful sex forever. Correct. And, you know, I think it's hard for people to see that when they're in it and when they've read these horrible things and have been told horrible things. And have had it for years or however long but throughout 18 years i can't tell you how many people we've seen who have this and now they don't so it's been a large number and it it is possible and Mm -hmm. i think women need to hear that more than reading the horror stories i i agree i completely agree and even when i talk to people who have vaginismus i tell them like i have i'm the third episode of the podcast was my friend who i happened to bump into at at the pelvic floor pt place we go to in new york and she said she was there for painful sex and she went to physical therapy for a few months and she's completely better. So I feel like I keep hearing these stories where people have been cured through pelvic floor physical therapy and using dilators at home and doing other at-home treatments and stretches. And I think that it really is important that people know this is something that can be treated and, and they're not going to have to live this way forever. Agreed. Um, and then... The next question that I kind of wanted to talk about that's not as related, but I saw that a coworker of yours on your blog, Jessica Drummond, wrote an article about the connection between SIBO, which stands for small intestine bacterial overgrowth and interstitial cystitis. And I thought that was a really interesting article because, well, yesterday I did a podcast episode with the urologist Christina Palmer, who 
thank you for putting me in touch with her but it was a really interesting episode and she talked a lot about IC and I mean I think that IC and obviously pelvic pain overlap um and then I think that SIBO is another issue that so many women have which which your coworker wrote about in the article who have any sort of pelvic pain or bladder pain they also have GI issues um and then I've had GI issues forever and I was recently diagnosed with SIBO and I've been seeing a functional medicine doctor in New York so he put me on a bunch of different herbs to treat the SIBO and then I also have had bladder frequency for years which I haven't been able to get under control and um actually Christina Palmer yesterday said something that was so interesting so I went to a bunch of different urologists in New York and they tested me for IC, they did a cystoscopy, and they said, we don't see any lesions on your bladder, you don't have IC. And so I was like, okay, I went to these two, What I my gynecologist referred me to these two urologists, I thought they were great urologists, I mean, from what I could tell, and I was like, okay, I don't have IC, great, moving on. And I told my PTs that, who are amazing, and they said, great, you don't have IC, done. And then recently I've been seeing Dr. Harris and she kind of said, you know, diagnosing, diagnosing IC is just a diagnosis. If, if you have all of these symptoms, we can still treat you for IC even if you don't have lesions on your bladder. So that was the first time I kind of heard a doctor explain that maybe IC is more about the symptoms and not about how the results of your cystoscopy in particular are are appearing but so back to what dr palmer said yesterday is that only 10 percent of people who have 10 percent of people who have ic have lesions on their bladder the other 90 percent their bladder appears perfectly fine they just have all the symptoms so i found that so interesting and that was the first time i had really ever heard ic being explained that way so i thought that was just fascinating that you know maybe a lot more people that have any sort of bladder issues might need to be treated for IC that aren't being treated for it. And as this article talks about, the overlap and connection between gut health. So my question for you is, what is your experience in seeing patients who have IC in your clinic and, and the relationship between SIBO or other gut disorders or problems. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad that this is coming up too, because again, this is a pelvic pain condition, but right. this is completely different than what we were just talking about, right. but these areas can overlap. Mm -hmm. So what Dr. Palmer was speaking to yesterday- And that was the first time, sorry, that was the first time I had ever seen, an, and I read about different pelvic pain conditions all the time, and I have never re read an article about the overlap of IC and SIBO. So I thought that was so interesting. Yeah, and it's it's very common actually. Right. Um, so interstitial cystitis is now having its own nomenclature crisis, just mm -hmm. the way vulvodynia, vestibulodynia, vaginismus did. And what has happened is like many of the specialists now recognize that it is not a disease of the bladder. The bladder is a symptom, not the cause. Right. And so in, in about 10% of people, there are Hunter's lesions that could be driving someone's symptoms. But one of the things that came out that was very powerful around 2010 is they 
did cystoscopes on 2,000 people, some symptomatic and some not. And this is where they really saw that people who had terrible looking linings of their bladder had no symptoms. And some people who had severe urinary urgency frequency pain with bladder filling had nothing on their bladder. And so if you look at our blog too, That's I, fascinating. It, we've written a number of articles on it because instead of being a bladder disease, it's now thought of as a myofascial pain syndrome because 97% of the people who have urinary urgency frequency pain with bladder filling also have pelvic floor dysfunction. Right. And some of their bladders look completely fine. And so if you direct all the treatment at the bladder with medications like Elmeron or installations, you're not going to get relief if you have concurrent myofascial pain. Right. Um, so it's important to recognize that the differential diagnosis is very important here and sometimes it is the bladder itself but sometimes the bladder is just the cause the victim right. because compressing the pelvic floor muscles on the urethra and around the bladder are going to cause bladder pain and with things like SIBO and I'm going to throw endometriosis in there too mm-hmm. I mean I think anybody who's had pelvic pain let's say who has urinary urgency and frequency you're going to notice you feel much worse when you're constipated or if you're having gastrointestinal distress and you're bloated you're going to feel worse if you're getting your period and you've got painful cramps your frequency is going to be more sure than it is when on a day that you're not and so there's a few mechanisms that are involved with that so the sacral nerve roots are important and what they call it is neuronal crosstalk so for the most simple terms like the nerves that go to the bladder the pelvic floor part of the colon or areas where there could be endometrial implants all share some spinal cord segments. And so if you have pain in one of those areas, it's more likely that you're gonna have symptoms, pain or symptoms, I should say, in another one of those areas because they influence one another because the nerves all communicate. And so it's also been tested pretty widely that people who are constipated have lower pain thresholds in certain areas, or people who have a urinary tract infection or a kidney infection will also experience pain at a sooner level in their rectum than somebody who doesn't. And so when we do see things like SIBO, it's important to treat that too, because in addition to the crosstalk that can happen between the organs, there's somatic consequences to all these visceral syndromes. Mm -hmm. So what that means is if there's visceral pain, you're gonna have muscle tightness in some of the muscles and you're gonna have tissue changes in areas that have similar innervation. Right. Um, And so that's important because there's a few different things happening there sensitivity of the organs and then you've got somatic consequences and I think an analogy that people can most relate to is everybody knows if you have a heart attack you can often feel it as shoulder pain right and this is the same thing so you can feel pain in a different part if than where it's coming from based on the, the nerve endings and where they go but again having a few of these things together makes everything feel worse treating each of them is going to make everything feel better better yeah and yeah. I've as I said I've had chronic constipation and many different GI issues and I always notice that like the first thing that flares up when my stomach isn't in good health is my pelvic pain. Of course. Yeah. So that's why we we have to ask these questions and make sure that we're helping our patients get those issues resolved too. And SIBO hasn't been something that, I mean, even still today, SIBO mm-hmm. isn't widely accepted by all gastrointestinal yeah. doctors. Some people don't believe in it, that's which so is crazy. absurd to me. Yeah. But I mean, they think it's absurd that we do. So 
we've seen effective treatments for that and with that calming the whole system down is what mm-hmm. will really help people step by step feel better i don't know if this is not a possible question to answer but do you see like if you had to say do you see SIBO causing ic i i mean ic wouldn't cause SIBO but do you see that people who have SIBO then they're more prone to developing IC as a consequence of that? So I I recently did um, a lecture for GI rounds over at Cedars, and it's interesting because it wasn't SIBO specifically in the research, but it showed that people who have constipation and gastrointestinal distress are more likely to have IC vulvodynia pelvic pain right. showing the overlap with the neuronal connections uh-huh. i don't know if SIBO specifically has right. been studied yet but it falls under the umbrella of gi distress uh-huh. yeah so when taking someone's history maybe it started with food poisoning and then they had SIBO, had no urinary urgency frequency or pelvic pain but then a few months later when they, they kept cycling through SIBO flares all of a sudden they're starting to have to urinate when their SIBO symptoms are bad a little more frequently and then their muscles are tightening because of the GI distress. Yeah. And then maybe the SIBO is cleared. The muscles are still tight. You still have urinary urgency and frequency, which is why it's important to treat it at each level where you see the impairments. So then do you see that when the GI issues clear up, the IC, does it, I don't know, does it go away or the symptoms get better? Can IC go away? Absolutely. Yeah. It's the same thing as we were saying, as long as you're treating the root causes. Right. So what we see if there's concurrent syndromes like that, as soon as the SIBO gets treated, which usually, you know, a round of antibiotics, people definitely feel less of their pelvic symptoms. Right. And then the ones that are remaining, what, why are they there? Is it a muscle issue? Is their bladder lining actually sensitive? Do they have a kidney stone? Like you've got to kind of figure out why the symptoms are still there Mm -hmm. and then treat those next. And a lot of these treatments can go on at the same time. Which is why I introduced you to my whole posse. <laughs> because we need everybody so when these different things are happening. And, you know, no, some completely. people need GI, some people don't. Yeah. Yeah. Is there anything else that you think would be helpful information for people listening that relates to what we've talked about or even doesn't relate to what we've talked about that you think would be helpful to share? I just don't want people to feel broken. Right. And especially when people are going through this, if you've been misdiagnosed, that usually has happened at least a few times. It's it's emotionally traumatizing. But also many people may start treatments and not tolerate them mm-hmm. or they might not respond. Right. And there's always a reason for it. And it's important to figure out what that is. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes people can't tolerate medications. Do I think they're mandatory? In cases of infection, probably. Right. But do you actually need to take a, a pharmaceutical to try to reduce your symptoms? No. No. But that could help take some of the neuronal hypersensitivity down, mm-hmm. which may make you able to tolerate physical therapy if it's too painful at first. Right. Sometimes you need to back off of manual therapy and do other types of therapy first and then try to PT again. It's just about figuring out what's going to work for you. And it's very individualized. But I think when people say, oh, I couldn't tolerate the medication, I didn't respond to PT, they feel like something's really wrong with them. Right. When in actuality, everybody's been through that who has these syndromes at least a few times Mm -hmm. so I think it would be better to think of that as normal versus having someone think that that's not normal right just with experience and watching people go through this it's very common to not respond or not tolerate things you just got to figure out the system that works for you I I completely agree and as you've said multiple times everyone's different so it's Mm -hmm. hard to 
say like a yes or no to a certain question or how will this person respond to this treatment it completely depends on that person Mm -hmm. but yeah there are so many treatments that you know just finding what works Mm -hmm. absolutely um where can people find you get in contact with you if they want to if they're in la and want to come make an appointment or even just email you follow you on instagram so we our website is pelvicpainrehab.com um, and I'll put all of these links in the show notes so that great. people can have easy access to them. Um, we wrote our book, Pelvic Pain Explained, to try and I to ordered it. Feel great. I have to read it. We Sitting on my night table. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I mean, because it's not stretch this and yeah. dilate that. It's right. more about the last thing that I said is about helping people figure out how to figure out their specific treatment plan right. and how to think about and analyze their issues. Because, um, you know, stretches and things like that are important. Manual therapy is important, but there's just a whole bigger picture. Yeah, for sure. Um, so you can, our book is, I think, a good resource. Our blog is a great resource for people. We cover all topics. You can just mm-hmm. search the categories for the ones you're most interested in, because at this point we have close to 400. Um, on Twitter, I'm at Pelvic Health. On Instagram, at Pelvic Health. We have a Pinterest page that clusters things by diagnosis and we also have a facebook page yeah we're trying to make it easy Mm. for people what's the blog called um the blog is called as the pelvis turns as the pelvis i'm dating myself a little bit as the world turns the the older soap opera um because it is it's just a constant rotating dynamic process no i love that and okay cool so we have facebook instagram the blog your book your website your email um our email it is possible to email us through the website itself okay cool so that if people go to that they can send in a request Mm -hmm. amazing thank you so much you're welcome thanks for having me yeah don't forget to leave a comment and share your feedback and rate this five stars and stay tuned for the next episode 